You're listening to the Victory Church Podcast. Here at Victory, we are called to equip a caring, committed community of worshipers to reach their world for Jesus. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Welcome to week two of our sermon series, Let's Be Clear. And we're being clear about abuse. Abuse happens in this fallen world. There are bad things that happen, and I know that a lot of times when those bad things happen, when abuse happens, that people begin to doubt God's love. They doubt God's care. Bad things do happen, but that doesn't mean that God is unaware or uncaring. This is what the Bible tells us with regard to God and his perspective on abuse. He does not take it lightly. Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Our focus is on dealing with victims of abuse. And a lot of times when we're dealing with victims of abuse, we skip verses 1, 2, and 3 of the passage I just read and go straight to verse 4, and we let the victim of abuse know, you must forgive them, you must forgive them. Why do you think we immediately jump to verse 4? Why do we go there with an emphasis on the abused forgiving the abuser? I can tell you one of the major reasons is that that's where the abuser wants the focus to be, on the abused forgiving the abuser. And this is where the abusive leader wants the church or the people who are abused in any environment, church or outside of the church, to be focused on, forgiving the abuser. And this is where the church or ministry that is more concerned about its own reputation, its own brand, wants the focus to be. They don't want it to be on the abuse or the pain that has been caused by the abuser. As you probably know, my daughter has been the victim of abuse, and she is coming forward with her story, and she's sharing it with us as part of this series. So right now, let's watch my daughter, Anna, and what she has to say. A lot of times, abuse brings confusion. When we think of vulnerable people or people who may be abused, we never categorize it as something that can happen to us. We think, not me, not my children, not my family, and not in my church. There's a reason why so many people don't come forward. But there's nothing shameful about being a victim, about being vulnerable. It can happen to anyone. Wade Mullen wrote a book called Something's Not Right decoding the hidden tactics of abuse and freeing yourself from its power. The beginning of his title summarizes what a lot of abusive situations start off like. Something feels off. Something doesn't seem quite right. 
And that's because wolves dressed in sheep's clothing bring confusion. They're pretending to be someone they aren't. They're manipulators. They not only manipulate the victim, but many times the whole community as well. Abuse when you are in it or after it can feel confusing. It feels wrong and not right, but it can be hard to pinpoint or even admit that it's happening. It comes with a lot of shame, even though it's not your fault and has nothing to do with who you are. When I was a kid, I didn't come forward for a lot of reasons. I was young, so I didn't understand what was happening. I just knew it was wrong. I thought I would ruin his future and disrupt my life and the lives of both of our family and friends. I didn't even understand what the word abuse was, except that surely it wouldn't happen to someone like me. And as an adult, an 18-year-old, it wasn't much different. I understood I was violated, but the same fears around it and confronting it consumed me. I thought, why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Would they even believe me? Would my voice be valued? Would I be protected? And would I be ruining his family? Even using the words abuse and assault themselves feel daunting. They seem like words to describe something that happens to someone else on the news and not to us. It can take quite a bit of time and counseling to be able to use the words to describe what has happened to us. But God is clear about His stance. He hates abuse. He hates exploitation and violation of His children. He hates the manipulation and abuse of power, and He confronts it for what it is. His heart is to protect and care for the vulnerable. His heart is to bring clarity and release shame. In my situation, confronting abuse brought clarity to me. It helped me to understand what I went through and lift the shame off of me. It showed me that I wasn't responsible for disrupting my family and my friends' lives, but the abuser was. And calling it out for what it was did disrupt my life and my family and friends' lives. But calling it out wasn't the issue. The abuse was. Confronting abuse wasn't an easy overnight process, and in some ways it did bring more pain. But overall, it brought light to a situation that I was carrying alone. It allowed proper accountability to happen and there was clarity between right and wrong. There was clarity between who should be held accountable and who was in the vulnerable position. So much of the shame came from carrying around someone else's sin and secret. When it was brought to light, I realized that I not only had a community to help me heal, but I no longer had to hold on to the shame of someone else's wrongful actions. Treating someone who comes forward as a problem is wrong. The sin and the abuse is what is wrong and what needs to be confronted. The majority of victims never come forward. They're worried about many of the things I was worried about. And they're afraid that if they do choose to come forward, they won't be believed. Or even worse, they might be believed and still disregarded. My hope is that each of us can help the church become a place of clarity regarding abuse. That we can be a safe place and represent God's heart towards the vulnerable. Yes, we really do want to be clear about the church's responsibility toward people who have been abused. We must care for them. We have to pay attention to verses 1, 2, and 3 of Luke 17 before we just jump to insisting that they move to verse 4. I love what Diane Langberg says in her book, Redeeming Power. She says, the majority of abusers and their supporters have consistently used theological teachings to cover up abuse or excuse it or return the victim to the abuser. And then Boz Chavidian, he says this, 
an abusive theology of forgiveness. Think about that. An abusive theology of forgiveness can be one of the most damaging spiritual wounds inflicted upon abuse survivors as it is a tactic often used by offenders and church leaders to protect themselves as they coerce the survivor to forgive and reconcile. We need to get this command by Jesus to forgive people who have hurt us in perspective. We need to look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke 17. So let's read those again. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. In other words, Jesus is putting the onus on the abuser, and he's saying straightforwardly, it would be better for you to drown than to hurt one of these little ones. It would be better for you to drown than to cause someone to lose their faith in God. This is extremely serious. And I think part of our problem in much of the church world today is that we do not have a good concept of God's wrath towards sin. That's right. I I think we've kind of moved away from that. And and maybe in some ways it's been proper that we move away from a focus on God's wrath because a lot of traditional religion just seems to be focused on the wrath of God, the wrath of God. And people in those kinds of environments never learn about the love and the grace of God. And I think some religious systems keep the focus on the wrath of God because they want to keep people locked into fear because that's a way to control people. We at Victory Church, we have unapologetically put the focus on God's grace, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness. We have good news to proclaim. And so we are unapologetic about that. Our emphasis is not on God's wrath. Our emphasis is on God's mercy. And, you know, if you look at Scripture, that's an appropriate emphasis because it often does talk about God's wrath in very small terms, but then it speaks expansively of God's love and God's mercy. But that doesn't mean that God's wrath does not exist. God is angry at sin. Someone once told me that it's probably a good thing that my uh, daughter's assailant is on the other side of the world. (laughs) And I'm like, why? Well, if he were close by, you might cause him a little bit of harm. And I think maybe that would be true because the natural inclination of a father who loves his daughter or loves his child is to protect the child and also to to get angry at anyone who would hurt that child. That's a natural product of a father's love for his child. And the Bible's absolutely clear that our Heavenly Father gets angry when His children are hurt or abused. That is a product of God's great love. God's wrath toward abusers, abusers of His little ones, is the product of God's amazing love toward His children. And so we see in Scripture evidence of God's wrath toward people who have not treated His children properly. 
In Ezekiel chapter 34, it talks about shepherds and the sheep of of Israel, the good sheep, the people that God had claimed for himself. And yet these shepherds had abused the sheep and God expresses wrath toward them. In other parts of scripture, you see God's anger. You see it in Jesus when he cleanses the temple because people were not being welcomed as God wanted them to be welcomed in the temple courts. He wanted his house to be a house of prayer for all nations, and yet they were being left out. The nations were being left out because of the abuse of the system. That made Jesus angry. You also see, and this is more of God's protection of the early church, but you see the case of Ananias and Sapphira who lost their lives because of lying to Peter and the Holy Spirit. There was a threat to the early church through their deceit. And so you see something of the wrath of God there. And then, you know, with regard to abuse within the family of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul says this, In this matter, speaking of sexual immorality, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his spirit. So abuse of a brother or sister, especially in this passage with regard to sexual immorality, is a rejection of God himself. And that brings about the anger of God as well. And then Peter, speaking of false teachers who were abusers of the people that they were supposed to be caring for, he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, that these people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. And then this past few days I was reading in my devotional time Psalm, chapter, Psalm 10, And I see there that David really gives expression to God's anger toward people who would harm his sheep. And so in verse 2 of Psalm 10, speaking of abusers, people who mistreat others, he says, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. That's verse 10. Moving on, verse 11, he says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. And then David says this, and this is an expression that I think is inspired by the Holy Spirit as David is writing this. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Now, am I saying that every abuser in every case manifests the full measure of that kind of wickedness? No, no. But I will say this, that the kind of wickedness described in these passages and in Psalm 10, has that that wickedness is in seed form in everybody who would abuse a brother or sister in Christ. 
one of these little ones, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. The seeds of all that evil are in someone who would abuse someone else. God hates that kind of abuse. Can, can we be any more clear than that? God hates it. God's wrath is certainly extended toward people who abuse weak, helpless, defenseless people. God hates it. And the reason he hates it is because the stakes are so high. The stakes are high. We need to be clear about this. What is at stake? What is at stake here is that one of these little ones might stumble. It doesn't just mean that, oh, they might sin as a result of somebody else leading them into sin. That's not exactly what Jesus was talking about here. He's talking about the strong possibility that because of the behavior of a supposed brother or sister in Christ, that one of these little ones might end up rejecting God, losing their faith altogether. They, they might stumble in their faith because of what was done to them and what was demanded of them, often in the name of God. No wonder. I, I thank God that my daughter Anna has recognized that the guys who assaulted her don't represent God. They do not represent God, even though they were a part of the church. They don't represent the heart of God. And part of the reason that she knows that they don't represent the heart of God is because I, as her dad, and her church here has made it very, very clear. There is a distinction between one of these little ones who has been harmed in some way and someone who has perpetrated that harm. We have to get God's perspective on abuse. We have to know this. Let me share these words that you can see right here on the screen. God's wrath toward abuse is tenderness toward the abused. It might sound like this is being really harsh, but it's really God's tenderness. Let me say it again. God's wrath toward abuse is tenderness toward the abused. We have muted the message of God's tenderness toward the abuse. How? By our light treatment of, our tenderness toward abusers. That's not the way God intends it to be. See, abuse devalues. And sometimes the way we, the church, have handled the abusive situation, the person who's been abused, the abuser, just reaffirms that negative message that the person who has been abused is of little value. Because we put the focus on, we must forgive and restore the abuser. I think it's time for us to understand that there's a place for punishment. There's a place for discipline in the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus said this, that if someone has sinned against you, to rebuke the person who has done so. Rebuke it. And if we take that as a broad principle, and we take it as our responsibility to protect the little one who has been abused, we must be serious about rebuking the abuser. So why don't we rebuke? Well, a lot of times it's because the deceiving wolves, the wolves in sheep's clothing, just do little things here and there that maybe on the surface seem a little bit out of place, a little strange, but we're not quite sure, so we never say anything about it. We dismiss it. And 
If the abuser is in a position of authority, a lot of times we don't do or say anything because we don't want to rock the boat too much. We don't want to upset things. We kind of like things the way they are in our church or in our ministry or in our institution. And we believe falsely that we're somehow maintaining integrity by failing to confront an abusive situation. When we had a staff member at our church making inappropriate comments and uh, inappropriately touching one of our members, we shared that with our staff. And upon sharing that incident, that abuse with our staff, it turns out that two or three had also experienced inappropriate words and inappropriate touch. But nobody had said anything because it wasn't really clear whether, you know, it was abusive or if it was just, you know, strange and maybe even a little creepy. But as more people became aware of it, it was obvious that it was behavior that was totally out of bounds. And then when we shared it with the rest of the congregation, our membership, there were more stories of that kind of abuse that came forward. And nobody had said anything because it was just a little here and a little bit there. Because a lot of times what is happening is that people are testing the limits. They want to see how far they can go. And if they feel like they have an open door, then the abuse can become worse and worse. So we want to deal with it. We want to rebuke it. We want to confront it. And rebuking it should also entail appropriate action when it comes to light. We need to do something about it. Church discipline doesn't just belong to the Amish. It is biblical. We are to exercise church discipline. And I would say this, an abuser, especially one who is in any kind of shepherding role and abuses the sheep, should never be put back into a position over the sheep again. They can find another job. And I believe at Victory Church, that's the way it is, and that's the way it should be. We don't have to put them back into a place of authority or trust over God's sheep. Now, what if they repent? Jesus talks about repenting, and if they do repent, how often we should go back and we should forgive them. And I have to admit, we know this, Abuse is not the unpardonable sin. But we need to understand what repentance is all about. And abuse demands repentance. And there are some components to repentance. Humility, restitution, really understanding what the abuse is. No more excuses, no explaining it away, not that they drank too much or they took a sleeping pill. No, there must be ownership of the abuse. There must must be acknowledgement and there must be restoration and restitution wherever that can be offered. See, a lot of times, you know, we, we don't expect those things and we give people an easy out because we want them to have an easy out. It's not just that they want an easy out. We want them to have an easy out. We don't want 
to deal with the failure of somebody perhaps who's been used powerfully by the Lord. And sometimes it's as though we feel that if they did something wrong after we've experienced such a blessing from God through their ministry, through their preaching, through their praying, through their care for us, then Somehow, if they are exposed as abusers and held accountable for their abuse, that that invalidates our own personal experience. Well, that's not so. God used Balaam to speak a blessing over Israel, even though Balaam was a false prophet and a tool of the devil. When he spoke, he spoke God's blessing, and the blessing was real. The blessing was valid. Jesus said people will say to him on that day, the day of the Lord, 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 did I not cast out demons? Did I not prophesy in your name? People can receive the blessing of that prophetic word. They can receive the freedom over the powers of darkness through people who Jesus says do not know him and whom Jesus does not know. Does that invalidate the ministry that took place? No. And we need to understand that. And some of us in the church world need to stop defending people who have committed abuse. But what if they repent? My experience is this. Some can and some will, but most do not. Most do not. When we first started talking to Boz Chavidian about holding the church accountable with regard to my daughter's abuse... Our expectation, our hope was that there would be an acknowledgement of what had happened and that there would be proper action and proper restoration. But yet our counsel told us that, well, that would be great, but it's probably not what they're going to do. Here's what they're going to do. And every step along the way has proven our counsel right. I don't have a whole lot of hope for these abusers who have deceived themselves and deceived other people to really repent. But if they do, then healing will be much more likely to be experienced by those who've been abused. We need real repentance, and we as the church need to insist on it. Now, I know this can seem kind of harsh, kind of like a harsh message, but uh, it's not really harsh. It's really healing to those who have experienced the pain of abuse, especially in a church environment. It's not a rah-rah message. This, this message in some ways is like a ride to the hospital in an ambulance. My father, just a few weeks ago, was taken by helicopter to a hospital where he entered the ICU, the intensive care unit, for two weeks. And, you know, that hospital journey was not pleasant. The idea of it was not pleasant, but the end result was his healing and restoration. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the end results here. We are expecting, as we take this difficult journey that there will be healing and there will be wholeness and God will be glorified. We looked at part of Psalm 10. Psalm 10 wraps up this way. This is where we're going with this. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. That's our prayer. That's our belief. That's where we're headed because that's where God intends for us to go. Let's pray. 
If you need to receive Christ, open your heart right now. Just say these words. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I believe Jesus died, he was raised from the dead, and he is Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your presence. Help me live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me as your very own child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, welcome to the family of God. Stay with us. Somebody's going to come and share with you some important next steps. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the Victory Church Podcast. If this message inspired you, feel free to share it with your friends, family, and social media. And make sure to subscribe to hear future messages from Victory Church. If you'd like to support the mission of Victory, please visit getvictory.net slash give. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.